This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Tabidi Anupuile. And I'm Ben Brophy. And we are back from a short break to take on part two of our uh, listener Q&A. So thanks again to all of you who sent us um, so many great questions. We hope you were blessed by um, the answers. And um, if, if some of you might have sent in questions where the answer literally was in some former recent podcast episode, uh, we don't expect you to have listened to all the podcasts. We just will try to point you to that when we hear a question of one kind or another. But thank you for continuing to just engage and ask these questions. I think, I don't know about you guys, but I can sort of feel almost the weight that our brothers and sisters listening are feeling as we get closer to the election. Just uh, I'm feeling pressure of one kind or another to vote a certain way to be a certain way in my church, if you're a pastor, to say or not say certain things. So I really feel the weight of that. And I'm, I guess my, my prayer for today is that we can just continue to answer some of these questions in a way that'll be helpful. Amen. No, I, I don't know about that whole, we don't expect you to listen to all the podcast thing. Oh, uh, yeah, well. All of them. That's where all the answers are. <laughs> <laughs> our new tagline, we have all the answers. <laughs> But no, I, I, I think you're right on the weightiness. And I think the sense of weightiness will grow over the next 60 days or so as we head to the general. Yeah, yeah we had a, Thabiti and I had an exchange with someone on Twitter, I guess that was last night. And I, I don't know, I don't know his context at all. I think he is somewhere in uh, like the South or Midwest, somewhere in there and was just saying like he he's being told that there's no biblical way you can vote for the Democratic Party or I get, yeah. And so there's just this kind of like, oh, wow, there's just people who are in completely different cultural contexts where mm. thinking that, yeah, the Bible doesn't bind conscience on who to vote for is rare. Um, and so, yeah, that was just a, a helpful reminder of there's people out there who, who just haven't grappled with these things or are starting to grapple with them now. And don't know um how to think through those things and um so this podcast is a part of it is our meager efforts to try and help there um yeah yeah so let's talk through a few of those and then um we will come back to that in the weightiness just keeping listeners like that in mind um so simple one to start with hopefully an easy one well easier um one 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 person asked should the church create platforms and regular classes to teach the flock on how a Christian should engage politics? I think I know the answer, this person says, but if so, then how? So what do you guys think? I would say yes. Um, I would say yes, because engaging politics is not a thing unto itself. It's part of our discipleship. It's part of how we express Christ's lordship in our life. It's part of how we love our neighbor. Uh, it's part of how we steward the privileges that God has given us in this country. Um, in fact, it's part of how we make the country healthy is participating uh, in, in, in politics in some sense. Um, but none of us come with that software downloaded, preloaded. We, we have to, like so many other things, all other things really, in the Christian life, we have to be instructed. We have to be taught from God's word 
Um, and so to have a in your regular sort of rotation of Sunday school classes, to have a six week, seven week, 13 week class, thinking about um, fundamental issues related to how Christians um, steward our civic life would be, would be good. Um, preaching, of course, would be good, whether that's a, a sort of topical series or whether that's having a sort of political application as part of your grid for preaching through any text where, where it's appropriate. Uh, so including it there. Uh, I think it'd be good to do field trips as a church. Uh, so I think of one pastor, for example, that took members of his church on a civil rights tour um, in the South and um, stopped at sort of all the landmark civil rights places and uh, processed some of those things as a congregation. And that wasn't political in the sense of vote for candidate A or Y, and, and I wouldn't suggest you ever do that. Um, but it was political in that sort of discipleship, experiential, walking together with the Lord kind of way, uh, and transformative. And so I think there are many ways, and I would encourage guys to be creative about that. Maybe start a podcast um, or, or some other medium to, to get information to your church um, that helps them follow Jesus in this area. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that that's, I think it's, yeah, it doesn't help Christians to have areas of life that are, you know, hands off, right? Like the, the Bible is authoritative over everything, not, not just the parts of our lives that we're comfortable talking about. So I think um, certainly Sunday school class, if you have such a thing, is useful, a useful place to teach on something like that. I think we've all been a part of churches that have done that. Um, I think two, something I've seen done well is kind of like family conversations um, where you just have a couple people of varying perspectives come in and talk about um, whatever issues they think the church needs to be sharpened on. I think that stuff can be really helpful and that's a good avenue for politics among other things to be addressed. So yeah, I think the only thing I want to say is the church should teach on it well. Like there's, we can all think of examples of politics being brought in or politicians literally coming in to stump for themselves on the campaign trail um, on the left and the right. It's like, well, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we want to be about the Bible and what the Bible has to say about um, the way we, we live and think and vote. Um, we don't want to, uh, make our pulpits or our churches um, platforms for one political kingdom or the other. Um, so that's that's my only that's my only caveat is is we want to make sure that we do those things well. And if you and here here's one thing to consider: if you're a church, you're a pastor, or you're a set of elders that doesn't know how to do that well, um, I would say wait, study, learn, don't jump in without without being well-informed, well, well-studied well in the word on, on what you think you should say to your congregation. Because bad teaching on this stuff, I think, I think we are bearing some of the fruit of that uh, in our current season. So yeah, yeah. do it well. I, yeah. I, I, I think um, I, I, Sunday school, topical, a thing that goes into that category of where, where would you do topical teaching about other things, right? Like about discipleship or about evangelism. Well, okay, engaging in your community's political life would be another one. 
right? And it's like that, that might end up in the occasional sermon series or it could end up in like Sunday school teaching or a study group, that sort of thing. And there are lots of great books that have been written that try to sort of get at this question. Um, ben, I sympathize with what you say that like it's a minefield out there in the current context. If you're a pastor thinking about doing this, you're probably thinking, oh man, <laughs> like, you know, um, how am I going to handle all the opinions that come out from people, not even within the context of such a class, but like about the fact that I'm even doing it. Yeah. Um, ben, 3D, advice for the pastor who might be thinking, who might be asking themselves that question? Yeah, go ahead and do it. Don't, don't be a coward, right? Um, there's just all kinds of things we have to declare God's word on that people don't want to hear. Right. So if, if we were talking about, um, I don't know, pick a moral issue, you know, abortion or something of that sort. Um, and, and a pastor said, well, I really don't want to weigh in on that because somebody's going to be upset. We would all rebuke that pastor uh, as essentially being cowardly mm-hmm. uh, and not speaking where the Bible speaks. Well, uh, kind of like what, you know, oh, I'm not going to teach about, you know, I'm not going to teach about, uh, um, you know, about greed you know, I live in New York City. A lot of my, a lot of my congregation works in the finance industry. I'm not going to teach about greed. That'll make some people upset. None of us w- would think that's a good idea, right? Like, we all reject that, right? Yeah. So, so one thing is just put on your big boy britches and and get in the pulpit and declare, "Thus saith the Lord." Uh, now, if you are, you know, to to Ben's point about doing it well, if you're preaching what the Bible teaches and people have a problem with that, well, they don't really have a problem with you. They have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the Scripture. Um, and you should, we should be confronting people um, with the scripture in places where they need confronting. Um, so I would say, go ahead and do it. Um, if, if you're in this sort of category that, that you and Ben were talking about where you feel like, yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't really had a lot of teaching here myself. I don't have a lot of formation here myself. I would say two things. Number one, then, then you must understand that 98% of your people likewise are undertaught in this area, right? So this is not just a you problem, this is all your sheep. Uh, And then secondly, I would say then find ways of doing it in a more family, collegial kind of way. Don't don't slide into the temptation of thinking you're the expert just because you're the pastor. Being pastors doesn't make us experts in everything. And so I think it'd be wonderfully humble just to say to your congregation, listen, I went through however many years of seminary. I've been preaching for however many years. I've never had any systematic instruction in this area. Uh, I found about two or three good books I'm going to read this year. How about we read them together, right? Read the books, then, you know, have a, have a big discussion, you know, and, and walk through it together. Just make it a formative time for the whole family where nobody is, is pretending to, um, you know, authority and expertise. But, but we're just iron sharpening iron um, and being a lot more egalitarian in that sense. Yeah. One, so one, of, one other sort of practical thing I'd say here is I think part of the norm to create is that of encouraging healthy debate and disagreement and discussion. Mm-hmm. Like, um, actually, I think this is true on matters of theology more than we allow for as well. I think I saw a tweet by you about that the other day, Thabiti, like that we actually probably may invest too much in the stakes of debating some of these things. I think the same can be said of, of politics. Like, so you have two choices, right? If you're going to like, you're, you can either narrow the circle to we only talk about stuff we agree on, right? 
or you can widen the circle, make it a little noisier, a little bit more people arguing with each other and just encourage that, create an environment where people feel safe doing that, um, where it's not like heresy every time someone says something that others disagree with. Um, the other thing I would note is that it's a bipartisan thing. People will be just as helped by you carefully explaining the historic Christian position on abortion and why it is the way it is, as they will by you saying, teaching something about how, hmm, well, maybe Black Lives Matter isn't automatically a bad thing because some Christian leaders say it is, right? Which that the second feels more controversial, but actually we are undertaught in both areas. Yeah. Like, you know, if that makes any sense. And so it's sort of like, actually, people need this across the spectrum. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's go to the next question, which here is uh, also related to kind of life inside the church and specifically zeroing in on questions of kind of diversity. And it says, should churches intentionally pursue diversity of age, ethnicity, status, et cetera? And if so, how should they do it? Well, let me maybe answer that question with a question. Should a family intentionally pursue diversity? Should we seek to have members in our families of different ages? Of course, we want our families to continue. We will, right? We will. We adults will have children. We will at some yeah. point become grandchildren uh, or grandparents. Um, we we are the nature of family is that it is in that level diverse um, in terms of age and things of that sort. The nature of the family that God himself is building um, is that it's one family of all the families of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and so we should be longing for God's family and God's vision of family, which is, which is diverse. And so I think, yes. Um, you know, the, the caveat to that, of course, is if, you're, if your local church is in a neighborhood that's, uh, or a region that's not particularly diverse, um, then I, and you reflect your community. I think that's fine. So I don't, if you if you're in some place that's ninety eight percent one ethnic group, uh, I don't think you should be looking to be like fifty fifty, uh -huh. uh, you know, ethnic groups or thirty 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 kind of thing. Um, I think that you, you want to trust the Lord to add to the body as He chooses, as He says in First Corinthians chapter twelve, is place each member in the body just as He chooses. Uh -huh. um, so long for it, pray for it. If you're in an area of appreciable diversity, love your neighbors. Uh, and if we have an expansive love for our neighbors, that's gonna bring us into contact with diverse peoples. And we pray that the gospel wins uh, some of those persons and, and brings them to our, our church families. Yeah, I don't think I have, I don't think I'd have anything to add to that. Um, I think what's under, underlying this question is the reality that uh, most churches are predominantly one ethnic group. Um, and so how do you combat that? Um, and I don't, I don't really, I don't really know the answer um, that's been around a long time. Uh, you know. So I guess I think the only thing I would say is like, if you are, you know, of majority culture, which I am, um, and you, you really desire diversity in your church um, or you desire to be a part of a diverse church, one thing you can do is go to a church that does not look like you. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, we certainly, we certainly ask minorities to go the other way um, consistently. Um, a really easy way if 20% of 
majority culture folks decided, you know what, I'm going to be a faithful member at a faithful minority led church. Like that would, that would go a long way. Now that require like, look, like that requires some things. You've got to give up some preferences. You've got to get uncomfortable. Um, and you've got to be willing to feel some things you've probably never felt in your life before in a place like church, which is supposed to be, you know, in our minds, at least a source of, of comfort. And it is, um, but you've got to be willing to let go of some preferences and, and lay that down. Um, yeah, it's, it is, it, yeah, I don't want to minimize the, the tension there or the, the discomfort there, but that is a, that'd be a fast way um, to make our churches a little more diverse. I do think one other underlying question as to why could the answer be no Right, like just just to like play the devil's advocate. Why is it dangerous? Why might it be dangerous to pursue diversity? I think what some would say is it's dangerous for the church to pursue something other than the gospel in a way that usurps the gospel. So like you you can find a church with like kind of not a whole lot by the by way of kind of true theology, but they're like, but we're spending a lot of time like making sure we're diverse, or or you could put in anything there. We're spending a lot of time making sure we are a community or that we are just doing good things as acts of service. And I think that's the underlying question that might, might come up for some folks here is, um, is that a risk as it were of sort of pursuing diversity? Relative to the opposite side of that, I think it's minuscule. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know that I see a lot of folks sacrificing biblical truth, for example, yep. to get to something called diversity. Yeah, I, I just don't see that. Um, but I do think I see the opposite. I do think I see a lot of folks uh, doing the opposite of what Ben has said, sort of basically in, you know, existing in the sort of spiritual enclaves where we're most comfortable. And, and usually that means we're the majority and things are kind of done in a way that, that feels familiar uh, to us according to our preferences. Uh, and then uncritically, and I would say unlovingly and unbiblically, wanting people to come and make their church more diverse by which they mean assimilating into all of those preferences, unchallenged, unquestioned, unexamined. Um, And so I think I see a lot more people being hurt by that um, than hurt by the other, the sort of the the counter situation you just described, Nick. Um, So I, you know, the suspicion just doesn't seem well-founded for me. I will say this then. It, it actually makes me wonder about not just the pursuit of diversity, but the pursuit of diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. um, which if you think about like the, 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 the terms that are in common use today, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, often the reason we use all three words is we say, well, one, getting one doesn't necessarily get you the other, right? So you can have a diverse place that feels like it's not terribly inclusive in terms of who's on the inside, who's on the outside. And that's, it's really hard work. It requires us to sort of question everything about what we do, it requires us to question the things we do that make us comfortable. Um, but I'll say this as a person, uh, you know, as a, as a person who's been in the minority in plenty of groups and also in churches, is it makes a big difference. Um, there's a, I, I'm, I'm, I was trying to look up the reference, I think it might be from the old classic uh, Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, but there's a section in there that talks about how the first thing anybody who's a person of color does when they walk into a room is they start counting we start counting. 
how many other <laughs> folks like me are here, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been, even if you're a white person, if you've ever been in the minority in a room, you have gotten a little taste of what that feels like. And so there's something there within, you know, can we have our churches not be spaces that feel like that? Um, that's a good thing to pursue um, because it is pursuing something more like what, you know, heaven, which will contain, you know, sort of uh, a cross section of all of humanity um, will look like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's funny, mate. Uh, I did not realize that was a thing, but I have. If if I am the minority in a space, I definitely count the other white people. You see exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't even I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think none of us. I I don't feel like yeah. I don't need to make this caveat. None of us would say sacrifice biblical truth in pursuit of diversity. Nobody would. Nobody. Yeah. We're not suggesting that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the things I've heard kicked around like intentional things that, that people can do in churches um you know it's it's nothing it's all preferential whether it's like worship style or who you're going to have pray publicly or who you're going to invest in discipling like it's it's not yeah i've never i i mean maybe thabiti has more robust thoughts here but i the the suggestions that i've had made to me as like how can we quote unquote pursue diversity like none of them they're all good things. Like they're all, they're, none of them are bad. But so, so let me then, let me then push that and say, I guess what I would say, and I wonder if you guys agree with this is there is a certain ideology of colorblindness in some circles that recoils against the idea of making strategic decisions like that. Like who's going to pray publicly? <laughs> um, who's, you know, like, I, I, I would, I would, I would, I would hate to think that you thought I picked you to pray because you are, you know, whatever, insert name of group here. Um, but in fact, like that can be a good thing if it's done with the right kind of heart intentions as you think about, like we often use the phrase representation matters. It matters to see someone like, you know, who looks like me, like in positions of prominence. Um, and like, we shouldn't shy away from that. I guess is I guess is one takeaway. It's like a a rigid colorblind ideology will sort of force us to say we're never ever 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 gonna do that. And what that essentially does is it entrenches the preferences of whoever's already in the majority. Well, and I think too, like I'm not I'm not picking a faithful you know brother or sister to get up there and pray because they're black. I am picking them because they're a faithful brother or sister and they're a part of my congregation. And I want to make sure all parts of my con congregation are reflected in those in those those people you see up front. So it's like, yeah, I, I'm not saying I'm not advocating for being colorblind. I'm saying that's not that's not the quote. Like I think there's a way in which you can you can do this and say like, oh, they're 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 becoming a token or whatever. And that's that's not at all what I'm saying. It's, it's just rather that I want to make sure I am highlighting faithful brothers and sisters who look of all different ages sex color everything um and are reflective of my of my neighborhood and get up there in in some way right so i don't know yeah i i guess what i'm i just wanted to clarify that one point yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not as if like you know i'm gonna have the one the one black guy come up and pray like every six months and that you know check a box it's not what i'm advocating for and i know you didn't say that i'm just 
clarify. No, no, it's everything down to like just being conscious. Like, oh, even like where are we where are we thinking about evangelism? Where are we thinking yeah. about other things like that? And who where are we thinking about in terms of representation? Yeah, to me, I, I cut you off. No, not at all. I, I was going to say. I mean, I, I hear Ben making the clarification and and that to find clarification to make. But I was going to say, even if you were checking the box, even if you were being that. Um, mm. I don't know, was contrived, whatever whatever the word is, if you being that um, sort of mechanical about it, I think that'd be an improvement. Mm. Because the word I, I used was strategic. Yeah, <laughs> I think that'd be strategic. Uh, because I, I do agree that, um, first of all, colorblindness doesn't exist. Just, mm. it's, it's a myth. It's, it's an ideology. Nobody's colorblind. We, we all um, make social attributions, you know, faster than the speed of thought. Um, and, and we're doing it all the time, a thousand, a thousand formulations a second. So that's just, you know, yeah, that's just not true. Um, so what that means is, is, as Nick pointed out a moment ago, is then what we're normally doing under that ideology is we're being very passive at representation, which you brothers have been so well talking about, and we're lapsing into uh, unexamined preferences, right? Uh, this is why, you know, there are guys who are out there who say, hey, I, I want more diverse leadership in my church. And you look out and you go, well, who are you spending time with? Mm. Who are you pouring into? And, 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 and that's assuming that you already have folks who are already qualified that you just don't know. Um, and when you get the answer to the question who you're spending time with, it's not the first group of guys at all, right? They're spending time with people who look just like them, who have the same kinds of preferences and so on. So without a kind of intentionality, and without a recognition that it is, it is widely the case in the country, in the culture, in the church, that if you don't, use a little word that'll be triggering for some folks, if you don't have an affirmative action approach to this, right, <laughs> um, you're simply going to be stuck in the, the absence of representation and inclusion um, and the valuing of the persons who are actually there um, who probably are, you know, to use the example sort of qualified for leadership, probably are qualified. They just don't look like you, right? And by look like, I don't just mean physically, but, you know, cultural things and other things, right? Um, so I do think if, if people want to make progress on this, they're going to have to be intentional. When I read the, the, the closing chapter of, of Colossians, Colossians 4, mm. and look at Paul uh, from like verse 10 on down, uh, sort of greeting, sending his greetings and talking about his team. He has a very diverse collection of people that he's ministering with. And it seems to me that that's not by accident. Uh, and, and he's naming where they're from. He's naming their background. He's talking about, you know, it's just me among and two other, three other people among all my Jewish brethren. He is noting that the sort of ethnic and, and, and civic context of his team. And he's including people who otherwise, in, in terms of um, Judaism, New Testament Judaism, he is including people who would have been at the margins of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And he's done that very intentionally because he believes the gospel does that. And I think that needs to be reflected in our leadership in our churches. And if it isn't, uh, I, I don't think we can legitimately hope to see much improvement. I guess one question I'd have though, or yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think being mindful of 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 inclusion, which is a good word, um, is, is needed and helpful. I, I guess, what do you, what do you do then when like churches seem to self sort all one way or the other, right? Like 
Sunday morning is the most segre- segregated hour in America, right? This is like a truism that we've known. You can talk to whatever stati- statisticians you want to, like churches still are predominantly one culture or the other. So I guess what I'm getting at is like, to some degree, it feels like pastors are either don't know what to do or it's out of their hands. Like their, their body may start with one ratio and then eventually it seems like everybody ends up in this same like 90, 10 or 95, five kind of split between one culture or another. Like, I don't know. Is there anything we can do to kind of prevent that self-selection from happening? Well, I think one thing we can do, uh, you've already alluded to it, Ben, and you're an example of it yourself. You can go to the church that's closest to your house. Yeah. Right. So if you live in a diverse community, uh, you know, any, any diversity, chances are to be in that self-selected group or that monolithic group, you've driven by half a dozen churches of other ethnic sort of compositions. And I think you need, we need to be honest that we have done that because of um, ethnic preference. Uh, and we need to repent of that, right? So we're just driven by a whole bunch of God's people to get to this select group of God's people. Um, and we need to name that for the prejudice that it is and, and to repent of it uh, in that way. Second thing is, um, so go join a church closest to your house, particularly you know, if it's not your own ethnic background. Second thing is, man, and this, this, is, this is where some people, again, get allergic and break out in hives, but until sort of predominantly white evangelical churches repent of the ways in which they center whiteness uh, and center their own cultural preferences and, and make them normative, uh, I, I don't know how people who want to live with a sense of integrity and a sense of, of spiritual and emotional well-being, I don't know how um, we're going to see an uptick in, in sort of integration of churches because to be in that context is to be sort of constantly pressing through um, those kinds of issues and pressing toward a kind of unity that increasingly feels one-sided. Yeah. Right? So, you know, again, Ben, you were at ARC, you were a minority in that, uh, you just alluded to it a moment ago, I'm sure there are a hundred ways that uh, on a Sunday morning you were pressing through, um, you know, any number of things to be there. Most of them never acknowledged. And, and, and much less thank you were thanked for, right? Everybody who's in that position is making those kinds of sacrifices to be there. And if they're doing that and the sort of majority seems unaware, uncaring, and unaccommodating, then most people at some point are going to go, you know what, this is just too taxing. I, I need to be somewhere else. Um, and and I, don't know, I don't see that changing un- until we actually become more cognizant of uh, the need to sort of be hospitable, to love the stranger, mm. um, to obey the Bible in that regard, and, and to pull out of our sort of um, fellowships um, those things that are sort of moved into the center uh, in terms of what it what people have to agree to uh, or abide by in order to be there, to pull out those things that don't belong there until it's just more and more just Jesus in the middle. Uh, and that's a lot of hard work. What are some of the preferences you, you talk about, like, you know, centering white preferences in, in majority churches? What are some of those? Yeah. So in a multi-ethnic church, for example, the music style is going to tend towards CCM. Mm-hmm. Right? And here's the interesting thing. 
if you go to a predominantly black church like ARC, uh, where most of the leadership, a lot of the membership have been discipled in uh, predominantly white churches, guess what we would drift to musically? <laughs> Unless we self-consciously made another decision. We, we drift to CCM. That, that's, that's just a measure of cultural power, right? Um, and, and so that would be one. So what, what we do musically, for example, uh, would be a preference issue that, that we need to be examined. Now, I know there are ways in which that's superficial too, but it, it, it'd be an, an illustration. What, what we do in terms of um, who we cite, who we quote, yeah. who, who we profile uh, in, in sermons, in illustrations, um, things of that sort, it has a huge signal effect about who really does good theology. Um, who really does contribute to the body of Christ, who helps us in our faith, um, things of that sort. Mm. Um, there, there are all kinds of things around dress and the acceptance of dress, right? So in our neighborhood, if we're going to be successful at, at reaching young people in our neighborhood, we better be comfortable with them showing up in, in blue jeans and just white t-shirts. Yeah. Right? Um, but I know a lot of old saints, black and white, right? Hispanic would be very uncomfortable about that, right? Um, uh, and so are seeing that through a sort of class and generational lens. Um, so there are all kinds of things we have to just, we have to re-examine and we won't be able to do it unless, back to Nick's point, we make it okay to talk about these things. Mm. Unless we make it normative that we, we discuss these things and reflect on it. So those would be, those would be some, some quick examples. Yeah, and those all strike me just as preferences that can be laid down for the sake of ever right like none, none of that is you know we made the caveat like we you know of course never violate scripture for diversity but everything we just talked about is completely preferential and we have freedom to do those things yeah well, the got, more, yeah go ahead Nick. i'll say the more you do them the more the more the gospel is distinct right the other the trappings around it have fallen away and all that's left is the thing that unites us and that's a beautiful thing Well, we are, we are overdue for a break, so I'm going to go ahead and take a break. We'll come back and take on another question. All right, we're back. So this next one might take us a minute to press in on, but I actually think it's useful as an illustration. We can take it as literally or as figuratively as we'd like. From a Christian perspective, what are the biggest things Trump, our current president, has failed in and done well? And then going back to one president before that, what are the biggest things Obama failed in and did well? Um, this person says, I'd like to hear specifics so that I can test whether I'm towing a party line or not, which is always a good thing to do. So appreciate the spirit of the question. You guys don't need to answer everything forever. Maybe we can start with, um, I guess we can start with Trump, with sort of failures and successes we think over these last three and a half years. I'll, uh, I'll start with a success. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think Trump passed, President Trump passed the First Step Act, which yeah. I think is, I think is the most substantive policy that we've had on criminal justice reform in a decade, longer. Um, and so I thought that was a bipartisan bill, plenty of support from both sides. Um, advocates were working on that for a couple of years. I think, I think it, yeah, I think it was important legislation that, that very incrementally 
made our justice system a, a little bit more just. Now there's a long way to go. It's not a done job. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing that would not have happened with a traditional Republican president. Um, so I think I will give him kudos for that. Um, the failing that I see, um, I think the one, I think the one, the most obvious one to me is, you know, when we talk about how we think about supporting candidates, the two buckets, policy and character. And I think character is the one that uh, he's so clearly failed in. Um, I think if the biblical view of leadership is, you know, gentleness, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, um, so yeah. forth and so on. I just don't see a lot of that from our president. I see a lot of uh, full giving full vent to one's anger on Twitter. I see a lot of, um, yeah, adversarial, argumentative, vindictiveness in many in many respects in the way that he talks um, on a on a fairly regular basis. So uh, that's that's all the other stuff. I mean, there's there's other things we can name, um, but I think if you just listen to his words and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks it's not a it's not a pretty picture so yeah three what do you think I, my mind goes um pretty quickly to, to two things in 2017 2018 where president trump is concerned um i i, I like his reinstating uh, the mexico city policy um it's done it by by memorandum um, it, I think it's more formally named the Protecting Life and Global Healthcare Assistance. Mm. Um, but basically looking at NGOs um, and, and making sure that uh, they will not perform or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning uh, with, with funds that the U.S. government uses to support um, those organizations. And so I, I think that was a, a good move. Um, it is interesting, Nick, as I think about the question, I think how you answer the question depends a little bit on uh, what your preferences are policy-wise, what you think are good policies, right? Sure. Uh, so I'm sure there are a lot of folks who would look at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, again, 2017, 2018, um, as, a, as a monumental success. Um, and so getting some kind of tax reform through uh, is, is never easy, and, and yet um, they were able to do that. Um, as well. To take a specific example, one thing that, that there are many things that that acted that, that we didn't like, I didn't like, uh, doubling the tax credit was a thing it did that I did like, the child tax credit rather, yeah. right? Like sort of like a pro-family policy in that yeah. bill. Yeah. yeah. Go, ahead, go ahead, Ben. No, those are good examples. I'd forgotten about the Mexico rule, which is, yeah, I mean, that's really, that is really helpful. Um, yeah. 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 So those, those would be some of, some of the things. Uh, I, this, doesn't raise, this doesn't rise to the level of policy, but, but we have to talk about the effectiveness at which they've been appointing judges. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not evaluating um, the judges as such, whether or not they've been good appointments or not. I'm just talking about the, the rate at which uh, they've been filling um, you know, the judges' seats across the country, uh, not just the Supreme Court, but the, the lower levels as well. Um, just from an administrative perspective, uh, that's been impressive. Um, again, you, you may not like it if you don't like the kind of judges that are that are being appointed, uh, but I, I think that's something that um, the administration has been able to do 
uh, with a fair amount of rapidity and success. So that would be my list. And I, I, will, I, and I, and I will sign on to that. I'm not, I am not a Federalist Society fanboy, so I, I will not sign on to the job. I will say it is good for us to have courts that can handle their caseloads. Amen. And so where partisanship kept federal bench like sort of vacant or empty or with seats held open because of bickering, right. and that's not true anymore, that is a good thing, regardless of what I think of the sort of ideologies at play. Yeah. Because you have to remember 90% of cases are actually decided pretty unanimously by folks on both the right and the left. We forget that. We look at the big marquee cases. Yeah. Amen. I'll stop there. I think I think I have I have Wait. so much I'm normally critical of. I'll just I'll just listen positive. Oh, okay. All right. I I oh, so okay. So I will I'll I'll go now. So I think positives I'll add, and this is where I'll uh maybe be a little heterodox vis-a-vis -vis my my lefty friends. Um I think there are aspects of Trump's foreign policy that are um, actually sensible. So I'm not, I'm not going to defend the uh, you know the so-called <laughs> cozying up to dictators. I'm not going to defend the love fest with Kim Jong Un or with Putin. What I will defend is sort of an idea that there's a foreign policy establishment that governs how we do international relationships, and they often get caught up in their own bubble, and they're often wrong. Right, they, they sort of form this thick conventional wisdom, and so I'm not I'm not all the way on board with the idea of America first, but the idea that like foreign policy should sort of have a clear view of American interest more so than it does right now. Um, so sort of there's a bluntness with which he does that I don't really appreciate, but the sense of like, well, yeah, we should get our NATO allies to pay their fair share of you know NATO like dues that sort of thing. I I don't think we should pull out of NATO over it. Right, that's where I would stop. But but the idea of like actually this should be a give and take, and we should be a little bit sharper and harder on that. That makes sense to me, right? I, uh, it's interesting. There's there's a bipartisanness to this too. The Obama folks used to refer to the um, foreign policy establishment in D.C. as quote the blob, and mm -hmm. what they meant was that there was a conventional wisdom that they were super frustrated with, and but because they were not always the most radical people, they, they would pick their battles as to when they challenged that conventional wisdom. Whereas well, this president, no such sort of, you know, constraints. So of course, it's going to challenge all of it. And sometimes that sort of conventional wisdom needs to be challenged, I think. Yeah, um, I would, I would even say, that, like, again, I agree with you, cozying up to Kim Jong-un is not a good, you know, we don't want to praise him. The language used there is problematic. I do not have a problem with him communicating with North Korea. Yeah, agree to that. I think yeah. Opening communications and trying to get negotiate some kind of agreement, and we know North Korea uh, is not acting in good faith often, but having those dialogues are useful, right? Like a realist school of thought would suggest you should be talking and setting clear markers for yep. if you do this, then this will happen. Um, yeah, so I I don't I, his foreign policy I think has been. Uh, decent yeah. Yeah. defensible at the very least right? defensible at the very now, least. we cannot like sort of have a brief discussion about like sort of signature failures of this administration without using the word coronavirus <laughs> like we, we we just oh, i'm sorry maybe you look like maybe you expected me to say something else but like i just <laughs> if i look at the year 2020 yeah. um it's you know what you know why i think about it because it's a moment that requires of a president both technical and characterological leadership, if that makes sense, right? Like, like it would have been good if he took an interest in sort of 
what will it take to respond to this thing? What will it take to mobilize us to respond? Is it all, we covered this in a separate episode. Didn't really do it to the extent that there was some stuff done. It was kind of people in the administration who sort of did stuff without him necessarily blessing it or paying a ton of attention. But then add on top of that, right? The sort of characterological, this is a time when people are hurting, they're suffering, they're looking to the leader to play that shepherding priestly role. And there's just none of that, right? There's, there's, there's quotes like, I don't take responsibility at all for what's happening right now. Um, which is about the worst thing to hear from like a leader in a time of war, a time of crisis, um, a time of challenge. Um, so I would, I would list that as like the, there are, there are others I can sort of, we can talk about that I think are also big failures, but that are more debatable. That for me is the sort of less debatable one. That is to me that stand looms large as his biggest failure. Interesting that you, you, you chose that one, Nick. Um, today the news is broke that, you know, there's, there's audio of him talking with Woodward, the journalist, uh, admitting that he knew things were bad, but uh, he didn't want to cause panic among the people. And so he, he spent all those early months downplaying how serious things were, uh, though, though he knew how bad they were. Um, so just, just, you know, up to the minute, case in point, yeah. <laughs> illustration of the, the policy failure there. Yeah, yeah, and, for and sure. the character failure. Yeah. Um, let's think about Obama now. So uh, thinking back four years and beyond. It's like forever ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm looking at his accomplishments right now. They're all this. Googling. Right, exactly. So, okay, so biggest accomplishments, triumphs that you think are the high points for him, and then um, things that are sort of failures uh, for him. Um, I mean, on... Uh, Again, I think Thabiti makes a good point. Whether you think he's successful or not, it depends on how you land on his yeah. policies. Uh, Osama bin Laden taken out under his reign. Um, that was uh, that was swinging the sword appropriately, I think. Um, so I thought that yeah, I mean universally, I think everybody thought that that was was a, a good outcome um what have i you know perhaps i would have preferred a trial and all those sorts of things but you know that's i don't think he was going to let that go down um so uh foreign policy reapproachment with cuba you know relations thawed a little bit there i think that that was a good thing um yeah i think whether yeah, what well, his signature his signature accomplishment? I mean, is is the Affordable Health Care Act, right? And so, depending on how you feel about that legislation, is is going to determine whether or not you thought that was a success or not. Um, so, I think those are the things. Uh, those are the kind of the positive things that come to mind. I mean, I'm certainly, you know, the the Great Recession happened in '08 and doing stimulus packages um, was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Um, I think that was, I think it's good that he acted. Um, as I've said in this show before, um, I'm Keynesian when things are bad and Hayekian when things are good. And so I thought, yeah, I thought that that was him trying to stimulate the economy there was, was good mm -hmm. and necessary. Uh, things I'll criticize him for, I mean, just, abortion policy across the board like it was essentially all bad 
fought really hard for protecting Planned Parenthood uh, funding, uh, rolled back restrictions on federal funding for abortions. Um, yeah, I mean, across the board, that was just, um, yeah, he's a, he's a very pro-choice president and that, that was probably, that's probably my biggest, my biggest beef um, with him policy wise. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it. I, I want to ding him because my, my pet, my hobby horse is foreign policy, but the red line in Syria also bad. Um, but that's, yeah. that's, that's minor. Yeah. You know, though, I don't think most Americans are thinking really hard about that, but that, that's a, that's a very, that's a, that's a foreign policy. No, no. If you're going to make a threat, you've got to, you got to be teeth to it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, think? yeah, I think I like Ben's list. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have things that I would, would uh, add, you know, uh, capturing, killing Osama bin Laden was huge. Um, you know, the, 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 the sort of bailout of the economy, I mean, inherited, uh, the, the, the economy was in terrible shape. Yeah. Uh, and, and what he did there to sort of turn the economy around and, and, and what he left the, the incumbent president with, um, I, I think it was just a sizable achievement. And, and man, you can't, I just don't think you can diminish the importance of um, brokering healthcare reform. Mm. Um, and uh, particularly when I think about uh, pre-existing conditions and things of that sort, uh, people are significantly affected by, um, I think it was a huge achievement. I think it was a huge achievement. DACA was under his watch too. That's DACA was under his watch. I think that was, you know, again, people people can be upset about the mechanism, but I think trying to fix that problem uh, in the way that he did, I, I think that was, I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, I think that was leadership. Um, and gosh, there was one more thing I wanted to say. Oh, um, this gets to character, sort of piggybacking on your earlier comments, Nick. Um, two things there. I in terms of any scandal with him personally and, and, and familiarly, just no scandal. It was just nice to have eight years of um, sort of scandal-free presidency in terms of, yeah. in terms of his family life and, and things of that sort. Uh, so it was just wonderful to watch the first family in that way. It's not policy, but it goes to character. The other thing that I think goes to character, and again, people will not like how he has handled some of these things, but I thought the way he shepherded the, co the country through racial conversations was incredibly skillful um, and uh, not flawless, but but tremendously helpful. His his speech in Philadelphia following the Jeremiah Wright, um, you know, brouhaha. I I think it's going to go down in American letters. I, I think it's going yeah, to be uh, great speeches uh, in American history. Um, so I think he tried to, to no one's complete satisfaction, but I think he <laughs> tried to manage. Um, manage that conversation. I mean, you know, he's got critics on the left and the right. So we, we know the folks on the right, but I mean, even a ton of history coach was uh, on the left was just very sharply critical um, of, of, of Obama's uh, comments in, in racial matters. Um, so yeah, to no one's satisfaction. Um, but I did think he showed some character in attempting to move a conversation that really has no political upside. Um, to move it uh, in a healthy direction. Yeah, uh, let's see. So to round that out, um, I'll try to I'll try to kind of build on what you all said and say some specifics there. So on healthcare reform, you know, like it or love it, it's an imperfect law. Um, 
what I think is striking about it is that it is now longer no, no longer a matter of debate that if you have a pre-existing condition, you should have access to health care coverage that's affordable. It's the reason the Republicans, when they had majorities everywhere, couldn't repeal the law because they couldn't agree on a way to do that. Um, but they knew they had to. And even the current president promises that in whatever magical change he's cooking up to healthcare reform, that protection of people with pre-existing conditions will stay, right? Like that, that has moved the ball, regardless of where the law ends up 10 years from now, around what we think we should provide to our citizens by way of access to healthcare coverage. So I think that's, that's uh, notable. Um, brokering the Paris climate deal, the very first uh, kind of comprehensive global treaty on climate emission reduction, even though Trump pulled us out of it, everyone else is still a signatory to it and taking it seriously. We'll talk in another episode about climate and whether the threat is real. <laughs> I know there is not consensus among these hosts about that, but I He's think promising it's that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just haven't had time to do the prep. Um, one other um, bit of foreign policy that I thought was good, which I know people, some will disagree with, though, was the Iran nuclear deal, which has since been dismantled by the current administration. But it was essentially a deal that had nothing but sort of, it had all the right safeguards in place. It had the ability to kind of snap back if they were ever sanctions in place, if they were ever violating them. And we basically went and reimposed the sanctions without seeing evidence that Iran was violating its share of the deal, right? Like, so, so that was the criticism, right? But like, you know, what to do with an unstable nuclear power, and there are only a handful in the world, um, is a really difficult question. We haven't solved it for North Korea, but he found a solution, even if it was only going to last us whatever, 10, 15 years for Iran. And that's a thing worth doing in those difficult situations. Um, this is going to be really controversial. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan onto the Supreme Court. Forget for a minute there, just as we did a moment ago, the specific ideologies and rulings, two women and the first Latina, given what we were just saying about um, representation mattering on a body of nine people that has been occupied mostly by white men for most of our history, that's a big deal. Um, and then my last note in terms of stimulus and job growth to be is that if you look at the chart of job growth over the last 10 years, it's basically an unbroken trend line from 20, 2010 through to, through to 2020. So whenever you hear sort of, you know, the current president supporters saying, I turned the economy around, what you just said about inheritance, look at the trend line. It's a straight line up starting in Obama's term and continuing through this term and only stopping when the coronavirus hit. Um, things that I think he did poorly, I'll, I'll sign on, I'll co-sign on the abortion stuff. And in fact, the very Mexico City policy that you just described, right, one of his first acts in office was to, was to uh, repeal that policy. So it is a football that goes back and forth, administration to administration. Um, I think I'll also actually single out foreign policy as an area of challenge for him. So Ben, I agree with you on the red line. I also think that the, um, the Libya intervention and sort of yeah. not having a plan for the peace after that. Yeah, that was a mess. That place is, yeah. Basically the thing you could, you could afford, you, so Obama's foreign policy was like encapsulated by some of his aides saying, we don't like the conventional wisdom, don't do stupid stuff. Although they used a different word than stuff, right? That's my foreign policy. The problem yeah. is it's not, always coherent. And yeah. so they didn't always have an answer to some of the dilemmas that you had in Syria or Libya. And the result is those places are worse off today than they were before, yeah. right? And so I, I do think that like that's, that's something you didn't quite get right. And then the last thing I'll say is 
you know, not entirely his fault, but he did come in promising a new kind of politics and things became more, not less polarized on his watch. That was partly the result of Republicans refusing to cooperate, like withholding their cooperation and help. Um, but for example, you could make the argument, Ben, that like policy matters, right? Like if he had if he had been a little bit more sort of willing to give and take on the abortion question, maybe he would have found willing partners in certain areas, right? Um, and well, so that would be yeah. the other thing I'd think about. I thought the, what I remember, like I remember in 2008, he said, you know, we may never agree on Roe v. Wade, but we can all agree that there should be less abortions. And I was like, that's like what won me over in 08. Like, oh, okay. And then 2012, when the race was tighter, it was, particularly in Virginia, their advertising blitz was on abortion. It was like, we need to make sure that this, so it, it just, yeah, I mean, it turns out that he's a politician and will, <laughs> will say what he needs to say to win. And I think in 08, I, I did, mm. I did, ho I was hoping for a, a kind of transformative figure. Um, and, you know, yeah, he was, he was a little more like a politician than I had hoped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No kidding. Well, so hopefully listener who asked that question, you can see we gave some diverse range of answers there. Um, presidencies and presidential administrations are complicated. I think we also noted there were several things that we said that were in the eye of the beholder in terms of us saying, oh, I, I thought that tax cut was good or I thought it was bad. Right. Yep. And then there were a handful where we all sort of agreed. Yeah. You know, abortion, you know, there's one side we, we fall on on that issue, et cetera. And I think that's the way you evaluate uh, presidents and presidential leaders. There are a handful of issues that are really uh, quite important. And even they're not dispositive in terms of your total opinion of the person, right? Uh, and then there are a lot of issues that are matters of freedom, where you might say, I like this, I didn't like that. And learning how to do that is a good muscle to develop. And that was a good exercise for me <laughs> to look for things I liked uh, that Donald Trump did and to look for things I didn't like that Obama did, for example. Yeah, I want to ditto that last point, Nick. Um, I, I think if there's uh, anything to learn from us answering that question just now, it's probably healthy um, to be, if you're an individual Christian, for example, to be that person in your congregation, in your friendship networks, uh, who's able to sort of see grace uh, and to affirm things that are good, um, just because you would have sort of critiques and, and to reject things that are bad. Um, you know, part of the sort of character of our political age right now is nobody wants to admit anything positive about the other guy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's just breeding, frankly, a kind of hatred in our politics uh, at, at, in its worst form uh, and is breeding an inability to think through these complexities um, in, in a more sort of normal form. And so uh, if we can be folks who can, yeah, who can see grace wherever we're looking and, and admit it out loud and, and be folks who can um, maybe temper conversations with a little bit of salt in that way, I think we'll be doing some positive good for the Lord. Amen. All right, we're going to take one more break, handle um, one or two more questions before signing off. So quick lightning round, guys, we'll do for these last ones. I'd love to hear how you decide what issues you speak into and what to ignore, whether on the podcast, from the pulpit, on social media, or in everyday life. So... Quick answer from each of us. Yeah, Ben. 
quick answer. Well, there's uh, different answers <laughs> depending on the outlet that we are talking about. Um, I think on this podcast, I'm willing to talk about anything politically because, again, this is a conversation that the three of us are having, trying to understand the scriptures and how it would inform politics, and then we're trying to trying to demonstrate the kind of loving, gracious conversation that people would disagree can have. So I'll talk about anything. This is not me speaking authoritatively from the pulpit. Um, I'm I'm positive I have some of these policies wrong. So I'm I'm willing to do talk about almost anything here. Um, for that reason, this is not to me. This is not preaching. We are trying to understand the word for sure, but this is very this is a very different thing. Um, and I make that I ju I just make that point, and now I'm being long winded, but I'm making that point because I think there is this kind of like thought out there that pastors or prominent Christians, whatever, whatever you want to call them, can only talk about, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and for, to some degree, like, I, I, I agree-ish in the sense that when I preach, I'm going to go chapter by chapter, line by line through the Bible. Um, I don't, I don't favor topical sermons very often, though they're obviously okay to do. Um, but this is different. These are just three brothers having a conversation. And I think we will talk about things as they come up as, I mean, honestly, as Nick wants to talk about them, because he's, he's the one ah. organizing it. Um, and I, I think that's good. Um, you know, I don't, I've never had a pulpit for any consistent amount of time. Uh, I've preached a handful of times and it's always been from the text. So I can dodge that one real easily. To me, it gives me the look. Uh, I will preach on topics as they come up in the scriptures. So if there are, you know, political or cultural applications that I think direct with the text that would benefit my congregation, I will make those. Um, I certainly will not let politics be off limits in a sermon because again, everything's under the authority of scripture. Um, but it really just depends. It depends on the, you know, most for me, most likely that's going to come in the application section. And so, yeah. um, it just, it really depends. Um, uh, and social media, again, this is an area of personal freedom. I say a lot less than I used to. Um, I find, and again, people are, fr different consciences are going to land in different places. For me, I am finding those conversations online to be less useful. And I don't have any great following, so I feel no shame or guilt in being quiet, a quiet lurker instead of an active tweeter. That's it. Um, lightning round. Um, I I think I have wound my way over the years to feeling liberty to speak on anything. Mm. Um, that's just freedom that Christ gives. I mean, it's wise, but it's freedom. <laughs> uh, I I try to add some wisdom to that by not speaking about things that the Bible says doesn't you know that we shouldn't speak about. So sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among you. Right. So I'm not going to be commenting publicly on sexual scandals with pastors, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, Twitter, social media. There's some folks who are hawks about that. Yeah. That's not going to be my thing. So there are going to be things that the scripture says I shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about. So I'm, I'm going to try not to talk about them. There are other things that the scripture says we should positively enjoin. Um, so Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, we should speak up for the vulnerable. Right. Um, so I feel compelled to, in some way, speak about those things um, that affect classes of people that are, that are vulnerable, that are marginalized. Um, 
And uh, I, I feel compelled to weigh into things that uh, feel closer to home uh, rather than much further away. Uh, and I feel compelled to weigh into things where um, maybe I have something to say. Um, I, so I don't, I, don't, I don't feel bound. Sometimes people show up in my Twitter feed like, yo, you, you retweeted this article over here, but you didn't say anything about this other incident that happened in Miami. Da, 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 da. It's like, I didn't know anything about the incident in Miami, right? Um, and uh, maybe the, the sort of factors make it something that, yeah, doesn't feel close to home to me. Um, and so I, I'm, I, I, you'll see a lot of local color in that sense uh, on my timeline, but um, I don't feel a sense that if I say something about one thing, I got to be commenting on everything. Um, and so I feel some freedom in that regard, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so I won't add much. Uh, I don't, I don't have a pulpit other than to say that like I, um, I think that we're pretty casual about deciding what we talk about. We try to just think in terms of what would be helpful um, and uh, what we're hearing people like. So even just hearing these questions and thinking like, what is it that people are struggling with or asking about? Um, and then I think you'll notice I'm the least active of the three of us on Twitter, um, <laughs> other than some, you know, much less controversial stuff about effective government that has to do with my day job. Um, and um, I think that um, I, I would say that, um, there's a reason for that. I think us reasoning together and going back and forth in a format like this is better for me than trying to make some pronouncement on Twitter. I, I think I would trip myself up if I did that. Um, and so, yeah, so but that's a matter of freedom, right? Cause I think, you know, there are people who handle that medium really, really well. Um, you know, so there's no, there's no shame on it. No, like, Oh, all social media is bad, but I, I think I'm just sort of like, I'm not sure I'd be very good at it. Um, so yeah. All right. Last question. Can I oh, just go ahead. One more thought on that. Um, I, I do feel um, part of the liberty I feel mm. is, is a, um, a freedom to make mistakes mm. and, and then a, 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 a healthy obligation to confess them, repent of them, make things right. Um, so so I, I think I want to encourage us toward that. I, you know, there are folks who feel paralyzed and won't say anything about anything because they're mortally afraid of getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think, well, yeah, you, you're not going to be helpful in the most difficult circumstances, right? In the most painful circumstances. So nothing ventured, nothing gained. And so I, I just think people need to uh, trust the Lord, even with their mistakes uh, and own their mistakes and, and, and do better next time. So, mm -hmm. For sure. All right, last question. This one has to be really fast. What glimpse? What is a glimpse of hope you currently see in the evangelical church, and/or in reformed circles, regarding race relations? <laughs> I'm, hope, I'm hopeful about our local church. I love our local church. <laughs> if you say so yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard question for me because I'm a guy who's been spending the last five years trying honestly to be more focused on my own local church and less, less in many substantive ways, less engaged in broader evangelicalism or broader reform theology. So I'm not, I'm not paying a whole lot of attention about what's going on out there. Um, I'm trying to pay more attention about the saints the Lord has put in my care 
Um, and, and there I'm encouraged to the extent that you could call us associated with evangelical and reform, um, which aren't labels that we, we sort of wear on our sleeves or flags we wear. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged about God's work there. Uh, for me, what I would say is over the past year-ish, I've gotten to know several young young pastors, you know, anywhere between the age of like 28 and 40. Um, and, and almost universally, there's a recognition of, you know, so, like there's racial injustice happening. Now, amongst this group of, you know, 10 to 20 or so pastors, what to do about those, it's all over the map. But there's no longer a denial of the fact that there is injustice and we as Christians should speak out about it. There is a recognition of the problem, at least in the, in the folks that I know. And of course, there's a super micro level, but I'm, I'm encouraged by that because I think when I've communicated with um, maybe, I don't want to group older saints into it, but other pastors, um, you know, whether or not there's still work to be done is kind of a question or can be a debate. Um, the guys that I know, there's no real debate about it. Um, the question becomes like, what do we, what do we do? Or how do we be better? How do we, how do we preach the whole counsel of God here? Um, and so that to me, I think is, <laughs> that probably, does, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> If I'm, if I'm a young African American, I hear that and be like, "That come on, that's it. It took you this long." So I get it. <laughs> like I get it. Uh, but it is actually of note that you know there there's a recognition of of the challenge and of the problem. So all I'll add to that is um, it's, this is going to sound weird, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. But actually, the disunity and dissent in those circles is the source of greatest encouragement to me. There are more critics, they're more numerous, and they're louder. <laughs> and they're, they, increasingly, they cannot be ignored. Um, and they hopefully will force a reckoning. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, I don't, I, I'm not for disunity for its own sake, obviously, right? But like, I think that that's actually um, an important part of how the Reformed Church will be reformed again, if that makes any sense. I mean, that's literally what a Reformation is. Maybe one thing we could pray for is, right, a kind of Reformation in Reformed circles. Uh, not of the core theological stuff, but of this set of applications that is, is in effect a blind spot, um, I think. Mm -hmm. All right, well. Those were your questions. We answered nearly all of them, or we tried to. Um, thank you again for sending them in. Thabiti, uh, you want to go ahead and uh, close us in prayer? Amen. Father, indeed, we do pray that you would pour forth your spirit uh, onto your church, that you would sanctify us according to uh, the truth. Your, your word is truth. We pray that you would reform and revive your people. And we pray, O oh Lord, that indeed uh, a reckoning by your hand uh, would come, that you would cause us to stand straight, to stand firm on the gospel, on the scripture, and for all that your kingdom requires in the way of loving neighbor and advancing 
truth and mercy and justice and righteousness. Um, awaken your church, O oh Lord, we pray. Revive your church, we pray. Uh, send forth your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?